Well, good morning, church. I have to say, this is probably my first or second time in three years being able to sit in and worship in this room, and I got to say, you guys sound good. You guys sound really, really good, and you're not letting any technical difficulties hinder your worship this morning. That's encouraging. So, hey, if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16? Matthew 16 is where we're going to be today, starting in verse 13. And if you're wondering who I am, uh, you've probably seen me on stage leading worship, uh, but my name is Alec. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I have the privilege of serving in our students and worship ministry. And uh, today, as you kind of saw from the bumper video and you can see from the slide, we are starting a new series called The Gospel Changes Everything. And I think we might be giving some things away just even in the title there. Uh, it's not too hard to figure out that we here at this church and the church of Jesus Christ, the true genuine church, we stand on one thing, and it's the gospel, don't we? That's a time for an amen right there. We stand on the gospel, amen? That is the reason we're here. That is the only reason, that's the only thing that we look to, the truth of God's word. We believe it is alive. We believe that it has the power to save. We believe that there is no heart, there is no person in this room who is too far, too far gone, who is uh, too much of a sinner, who has screwed up too much, uh, that Jesus can't meet them there. And if they place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, that they can be saved and changed even today. Amen? And as I was kind of thinking about this message today, and thinking about the series that we're in, I couldn't help but think about the things in our lives that change. And as a result, they change how we live, they change ourselves. I kind of thought about way, way back, if you can even think about this, but the first day of school. The first day you ever go to school, that's a big change, right? Your whole life, you just kind of, your mom just takes care of you, and you just kind of do whatever you want, and then finally you've got to, like, respond to a teacher, you've got to learn things, you're kind of set on a trajectory for the future. You get your backpack, you go to school. I went to Muskegon Christian uh, Elementary School in Muskegon uh, during my upbringing, and then later I went to West Michigan Christian High School, and that was a big change too. And I loved it, and I loved the high school, but you kind of go from middle school to high school, that's a big change. You got harder classes, you're kind of starting to figure out what you're interested in and what you're not interested in. And then I graduated high school, and I was so excited to go to college. I went to Hope College down the road, not too far from here, for my undergrad in business. And in college, you're kind of figuring out even more things. You're trying to figure out, hey, what's my major? What's my future going to look like? What am I going to do with my life? I remember when I graduated high school, I was like so pumped to go to college. And then when I was getting towards the end of college, I was starting to like get really emotional. I was like, oh my goodness, I have to get a job and I have to be an adult and I have to pay bills. It was awful. Um, but for myself, when I graduated, uh, I actually didn't work in ministry. Well, I worked two years in ministry um, before I graduated college. I worked at two different churches. But uh, when I graduated, I was kind of wrestling with, okay, well, I've got this business major. Uh, I know I might be going to ministry in the future. What am I going to do with my life? I decided to actually work in business for a year. And so I graduated Hope College with a business degree. I Worked in Grand Rapids. I worked for an insurance company. I uh, did employee benefits, kind of health insurance, life insurance, stuff like that. And um, that was a big change for me because I am, I'm paying rent. I'm kind of figuring out how to live on my own and buy groceries and things like that and sustain myself apart from my parents. 
So there's these big changes in my life, and maybe for you in this room, you're kind of going through some even bigger changes. Maybe you're maybe a, a married couple, and you're kind of reaching this uh, next phase called empty nesters. Any empty nesters in the room here? A few of you, proud, good job. Um, you can do it. Um, that's a big change, isn't it? Uh, maybe some of you are kind of reaching the end of your career. You're coming up on what is called retirement, and you're like, is, is this going to work? Am I prepared for this? What is this going to be like not working? And then some of us, we go through some of the hard changes in our lives. We experience a breakup. We have a health scare or maybe a bad diagnosis. Maybe some of us have lost family members, and that changes our lives. Maybe some of you are facing conflict, or maybe some of you have lost your jobs or been laid off during this past year. And all of these things have the same thing in common. They impact our lives for better or for worse. But I think today what I want to talk about is really there's something even bigger, something more important that has a greater impact on the lives that we live because it impacts not only the life that we live today on earth, but it has the impact for our future and eternity. And it's this. It's answers to questions. Answers to questions. Uh, I had a conversation with a friend recently, and he's kind of an older, wiser guy. I look up to him in my life, and he said this uh, recently. He's like, just stuck with me. He's like, man, the older I get, the more I realize that nobody has any idea what they're doing. Anybody resonate with that? Right? Can we be honest? I know I've said this, like, out loud, at least, with my, life, my wife probably a hundred times this past year. Like, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea how to proceed. I have no idea what's going on. I don't know what I should do in this certain situation. I don't know. I have no idea. Christian or non-Christian, we're all kind of figuring out life, aren't we? Right? We've got to answer some of these questions in our lives. We've got to find these answers. And there's a lot of important questions, aren't there? Do I get married? Should I get married? When to get married? To who? When do you know that you're ready? How do you parent a child? Right? There's so many books out there. Where do you start? What am I supposed to do with my life? What's my career? How much money should I contribute to my 401k? Do I have enough savings? Do I have a good backup plan? More than my career, what's my purpose? And these are all really good questions. And I'm not sure about you, but if you're anything like me, when you start to answer some of these questions, you start to get a sense of peace don't you? You start to feel a sense of peace when you answer the hard questions in life. For myself, I've answered a few of these at least. Um, marriage. I'm married to Graciela or Gracie. I just I love saying her name. This is my wife and I on vacation about a month and a half ago. You guys can go on if you'd like, but you don't have to. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're coming up on two years of marriage uh, next month. Got to remember that. Um, so this is Gracie and myself, um, being married to her gives me an incredible amount of peace. The fact that I get to look at her for the rest of my life, that's a pretty awesome thing. What do I do with my life? Well, I've figured that one out. I, uh, I'm in ministry here today. Um, a question that I had to answer was, do I get a, a pet? Anybody answer that question? Well, I got two. Here's my dogs. This is uh, Dobie on the left. Not Dobby from Harry Potter, but Dobie. And then Billy. There's a long story if you ever want to know the answer of why we called 
her Billy. Um, it's a fun story. But if you're ever thinking about, this is a sidetrack, totally off script. If you're ever thinking about getting a Shiba Inu, this dog here on the right, they're incredibly cute. But they are impossible to train. So if you, can, if you know how to train dogs, come on over. I can't pay you, but uh, it's impossible. So I've answered these couple questions, still kind of figuring out how to manage my money, but I've got a budget. I'm a responsible adult. Um, still trying to figure out what my greater purpose is in life, all those kinds of things. But all that to say, when you start to answer these questions in life, it gives us a sense of peace because it gives us security in our identity. It shapes who we are. Because I'm married to Gracie, I'm a husband. That gives me peace. Because I have two crazy dogs that are incredibly difficult to train, I'm a dog owner. That's part of my identity. I'm a pastor. See, answers to questions shape our identity. And so today, what I want to do is really simple. I want to look at this passage of Scripture, and I want to uh, point us to one of the most important questions that you and I can answer in our entire lives. And to make matters even more difficult, the person who is asking the question is Jesus Christ himself, and to take it another step forward. You and I are going to have to answer this question at some point. You don't have to answer it today. I'm not going to put pressure on you to do that, but you're going to have to answer this question, and there is no neutral position. You have to decide for yourself. And so what I want to do, I want to read this passage together straight through, and I want to ask God's Spirit to be working in our time together. So let's read Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to him, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we welcome your presence here in this place. God, we thank you for your word, and we acknowledge that we are 100% dependent on you right now. God, you gave us your word for a reason. You gave us this passage for a reason. So we're just asking that you and you alone would make it clear to us what you would have us learn today. We trust you at this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're taking notes, the first thing I want us to gather from this passage is this. It's that my understanding of who Jesus is might be inadequate. My understanding of who Jesus is might be inadequate. Now, in light of this conversation that's going on in the Gospel of John or Matthew here, it's important to note where this question is taking place. If you look back in your Bibles to the start in verse 13, it's happening in a, a city called Caesarea Philippi. 
And this is a, a, a picture of where Caesarea Philippi is located. You can kind of leave this up for a while. This kind of just shows where Jesus was doing his ministry during this time. And we can see where Caesarea Philippi is right there in the center of the screen. And it's about 20 to 25 miles northeast of the Sea of Galilee, which is about a two, two and a half day journey for Jesus and his disciples from their hometown. And in the first century, it's located at, as you can see, the, mo- the northeast, the northernmost point of the nation of Israel in pagan territory. Now, when I say pagan, this isn't just kind of like a put down or like a derogatory thing, like, oh man, Joel is such a pagan. Just kidding, I know you're not. But um, it's not a put down or derogatory thing. It's, it's it's basically, it means it's a kind of a hodgepodge or mishmash of just spiritual and religious uh, practices or ideologies. Like it is just, there's no firm foundation. There's no absolute truth that we have in Christianity and God's word. It's kind of just like, do whatever you want, believe what you want. It's paganism. And the city was actually, if I could nerd out, for a second here. The city was actually uh, originally named Peneus after the Greek god Pan. And Pan was the most famous uh, symbol and god of fertility and sex and seduction and lust. He was an incredibly uh, sexualized symbol. And so the culture was an incredibly sexualized culture, much more than you and I can even imagine. And now, to make it even more interesting, Pan, I think this is interesting, Pan was the only Greek god to ever die. What makes it even more interesting is Pan actually dies, uh, history tells us, uh, that Pan dies right when Caesar Augustus takes power. And why this is super significant is because if Pan represents the pagan kind of world where there's kind of no foundation, do whatever you want, feel whatever you feel, and just do whatever you feel like doing. At the time where Caesar takes power, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is born. And so we see paganism kind of symbolically dying in Christendom beginning when Jesus is born. I thought that was really fascinating. Later, the city was named after Caesar Augustus, Caesarea, and he gave it to Herod the Great, which is the Herod that we can learn from the Christmas story, who then later gave it to his son Philip for his birthday. Now, I don't know if that screams privilege to you, but it's kind of like, hey, what'd you get for your birthday? Oh, I got a city. Oh, that's cool. But Caesarea Philippi was named after these two people, Caesar and Philip. And I want to go to the next picture. This is kind of what's uh, a rendition of what this place looked like. And so as you can see, in the back there, there's a temple that is located. You can't really see, but the the line behind that, there's kind of an opening in the rock. We can actually go to the very next picture as well. So this is what's left of it today. So you can kind of see that opening better there. There's kind of a stream that we can't really see that's still there, a spring. But back in the day, this was kind of pumping water through. And uh, the people in this day actually believed that the opening of this mouth of this cave here was a sort of portal to the underworld. They actually called it the Gates of Hades. And so right here is where pagan rituals and sort of practices and worship is taking place and kind of this convergence of so many different belief systems. And it is here, of all places, where Jesus gathers his disciples. In the background, he's pointing to the city and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? 
Now notice what Jesus is doing. He's not just kind of going straight for the jugular. He's not going to get straight to the point. He's, he's kind of being intentional. He's being deliberate. He uses the term son of man. Now this is a term for Jesus that we know that is found throughout the Gospel of Matthew, but it's also found all throughout Scripture. It's found in Daniel, and because it's found in different parts of Scripture, there's so many different meanings of specifically the Son of Man, but we know it all points to Jesus Christ. And so what Jesus is kind of doing as he's asking this question, he's cryptically kind of asking, hey, I know who I am, but I'm kind of curious, who do people say that I am? It's intentional, it's deliberate. And they respond in verse 14. Look with me again. Some say John the Baptist. That's one working theory. You guys are very similar people. You guys are uh, kind of doing the same thing. So maybe you're kind of John the Baptist back from the dead. That's one theory. Others say Elijah. If you know your Bibles in the Old Testament, Elijah is this Hebrew prophet who never dies. So that's another theory. And others, Jeremiah, are one of the major prophets. And the disciples are answering the question based off of what they believe Jesus wanted to hear. But then Jesus gets to the point, verse 15. He says, who do you say that I am? It gets personal. Now, if we could pause here in this story for a moment, I'd like to ask you in this time, not really right now, but maybe today, but... If you can kind of look back over your lifetime, maybe as a, a kid growing up, I don't know how you grew up, if you grew up in a Christian home like myself, or maybe you're new to this whole thing, or maybe you have no background in Jesus at all. We are so thankful that you're here, and we're excited for this morning. But I want you to think for a moment of the different points in your life, based off of experiences, based off of upbringings, who do you believe that Jesus was? Because chances are, if you're anything like myself, you probably had some inadequate understandings of who Jesus is. And so as I was kind of thinking about this and different points in my life and how I kind of viewed Jesus, looking back now today, I know with certainty that they were 100% inadequate. And I'll name a few, three inadequate understandings of Jesus that I personally had. The first was this, that Jesus was just an impersonal religious figure. Just like Muhammad and the Quran with Islam, right? Jesus, he's kind of the Christian one. He's with the Bible. He's kind of that point of the story. But just kind of like a statue that you would see in a museum or outside of a, a sports arena. He's kind of this religious figure that really has no impact on my life whatsoever. I mean, think about it. He's a man. Okay, we know it was kind of historical. He lived. We believe that. All scholars, Christian or atheist, can agree that Jesus was an actual person who lived, breathed, and died. They don't know whether or not they can't agree whether or not he was raised. But we know that he was raised because of the authority of God's word. But even so, what does this have to do with my life? It's impersonal. I can't really relate to that. What am I supposed to have a relationship with a dead person? This is an inadequate understanding of who Jesus was. The second I know that I thought at some point in my life was that Jesus was simply a freedom card. He's a freedom card. He's kind of this get-out-of-jail-free card. If you know Monopoly, um, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And to that point, if you ever want to play Monopoly with my wife's family, you will lose for sure. They are intense about it. They are really good. You will be destroyed. 
But I believe that Jesus, you know, I'm thinking to myself, hey, you know what, what's the worst thing that could happen? If Jesus was actually real and he actually could save me from my sins and forgive me and give me this new life and eternity with him in heaven, okay, I'm all for that. Cool. Like, I'll, I'll do that. I won't give him, like, all of my life, but I'll give him some because why not? The, the risk-reward is incredible, right? Like, I get heaven for eternity. That's pretty sweet. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this, but there was a time in my life, I was probably, like, 12 years old, and uh, it's incredibly embarrassing to tell, tell a story, but I was playing basketball outside, and I was trying to work on my jump shot. I was never going to be a great basketball player. Let's be honest. I'm, like, five foot tall here. Um, but I was really just super frustrated with my shot, and I wanted to get better, and so I was practicing a lot, and I was so mad and incredibly frustrated to the point of clearly, and I'll tell you in a moment, completely irrational and illogical. So I'm like standing at the three-point line trying to get better, and I'm shooting, and I was telling myself, okay, if I make it, God's alive, right? That makes sense, right? If I make it, then clearly God's for me, right? But if I miss it, and God's, he's definitely not for me because I'm definitely good enough to make every single shot, right? I, I, I definitely should do that. It's completely irrational. But I kind of had this view of Jesus that was completely wrong and inadequate, that he was simply an impersonal religious figure or a freedom card. The third and final inadequate understanding I know that I had of Jesus is that he was just a disciplinary judge. Now we know from Scripture that Jesus, he will one day come to judge the living and the dead. But how I kind of understood this, especially as an early teenager, kind of starting to ask and answer the big questions of my life, I kind of saw Jesus kind of like this. Does anybody know the, the game Simon Says? All right, we know this game. Okay, if you don't know this game, you've got some issues. Uh, let, let's, let's work this out. Tom, you're sitting in the front. I know you. I'm sorry, bro. Can I ask you to stand up here? Simon says, stand up, okay? I'm Simon for a second. Just stay right there. So let's play this for a second. Simon says, touch your nose. Simon says, touch your head. Simon says, touch your ears. All right, you can take a seat. All right, just kidding. You lost because I didn't say Simon says. <laughs> well, thanks, Tom. You've perfectly illustrated this. So we know this game, we know how this goes, and we know how the rules go, because I'm Simon Says, if I'm Simon, Simon Says, Simon Goes, and if you don't do what I say, you lose, you, you fail, right? I kind of viewed my relationship with God in this way. God, you've given me a certain amount of things to do, and if I don't do them exactly the way that you tell me to, then you're going to be upset with me, and I fail. And there's a lot of things that you say, hey, don't do this. And if I do do them, I fail. And I found myself, especially in high school, wrestling with so many things. Constantly feeling that I could never live up to who Jesus wanted me to be. I thought he was a disciplinary judge that was eager to punish me when I fell short, inevitably. And we all do. And I was perpetually in the cycle of guilt and shame because of the inadequate understanding of who Jesus was. And maybe as I'm talking about these three understandings that I've experienced in my life, maybe you've resonated with one or two or three of them. And maybe you've got some of your own. And maybe today you're asking and trying to answer some of these questions in your life of who Jesus is. But the point of these first few verses is Jesus is pursuing his disciples. He's being intentionally deliberate, and he wants to reveal 
who he is. And so a question I have for you today is who is Jesus to you? Not yesterday, not a year ago, not when you were a kid, right now, today. Who is Jesus? Because our understanding might be inadequate. The next thing I want us to see in this passage is this. It's that believing who Jesus is changes my identity. Hence the series. Believing who Jesus is changes my identity. I want you to see this. Look at verse 16 with me. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So here's where the story shifts. Jesus, he, he gets down to business. He doesn't ask the open-ended question. He asks the personal question, who do you say I am? And Peter nails the pop quiz. He tells Jesus exactly who he is. He first says that you are the Christ. In Greek, this is the word Christos. In Hebrew, it's the same word for Messiah or Meshiach. It's the same word, Christos, Meshiach, the understanding that Jesus is the Christ. And so if you've ever thought to yourself, oh, it's Jesus Christ, that's like a first and a last name, right? This is who he is. He's Mr. Jesus Christ. That's not the case. It's a title. He is the Christ. He is Jesus the Christ, which simply means that he is the anointed one or the anointed king. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the one that was prophesied hundreds of years prior to his being birthed. He's the one who fulfilled not only the law, but he fulfilled the prophecies. Peter is saying, you're it. I'm standing in front of him right now. You're the Messiah, the Christ. And he also says you're the son of the living God. And he's referring to Jesus' humanity and his deity. And he's also recognizing that, Jesus, you've got something that nobody else has. Your relationship with God the Father is different than my relationship with God the Father. Because as John, the Gospel of John would say, is that Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And they knew this. And he says, yes. You're the son of the living God. You are who you say that you are. And then Jesus responds, and I love what he does here. Check this out. He says, you're Simon Barjona, son of Jonah, but not only that. You didn't just read about me in a book. You didn't just learn about me from your parents. You didn't just follow me because you grew up in West Michigan, and that's what everybody in West Michigan does. He says, the Father has revealed this to you. Only the Father has the ability to reveal who I am. And then he tells Peter exactly who he is. He says, you're Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail. So a couple things to unpack real quick. The first is Peter's name. Is there anybody in the room named Peter, by the way? Any Peters in the room? No Peters? Well, cool. I was just going to introduce myself to you. Hey, Peter, if you're out there. Um, but we get this kind of understanding of Peter, right? Like Peter, there's a middle name probably, most likely, maybe two, maybe three if you're really out there going for it. Uh, there's a Peter, but then there's a middle name probably, and then there's a last name, right? That's just kind of our English-American understanding of names. It's Peter Smith or whatever it is. But in this text, what Jesus is doing, Jesus, we know that his language that he most likely spoke in was Aramaic. 
And the word for Peter that he's using is Cephas, which we kind of see later on in Acts. And Peter and Cephas, the simple understanding of that is the rock. In the Greek, which is where, when Matthew's gospel was written in, uh, the Greek word for rock is Petros or Petra. And so we've got these two, these three words here. We've got Cephas and Peter and the rock and Petra or Petras. And it all means the same thing. It's like Peter, the rock, okay? Not like the rock, like the actor, the terrible actor, I should say. Um, but all scholars would agree that this is not the most helpful translation. Like just, just like Jesus Christ is not a first and last name, it's not Simon Peter like that's a first and last name. No, it's a title. When Jesus is calling him Simon Peter, he's saying that you are Simon the Rock. And as I was kind of researching this, I thought it was really interesting of a couple different understandings that scholars would say that this means. And so I just want to quick briefly go over these understandings of who Peter and the Rock is. The first is that Peter is seen as a sort of spiritual authority of the church. Now, this is kind of our Catholic friends who kind of take this to the, maybe the nth degree, I would say, is that because Peter is given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, Peter is the rock that the church would be built on. Peter is kind of seen as the first bishop that would then later on transfer power to the pope. That's why we kind of, or Catholics justify that there is a kind of uh, justification for popes, that they, they have some sort of spiritual authority. Now, we don't, we don't believe in that, right? Protestants, in the second view, is we believe this, that Peter's faith is the rock of the church. That is actually his faith that is an example to us, which is encouraging because if you look later on in the passage, Peter is called Satan and the devil, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I know probably you've never had that happen before, but there's kind of this ongoing process of sanctification where there's kind of this up and down, but later on we see all the great things that Peter does for the church. His faith is not perfect, but it's an example for us. And then there's a third understanding that I thought was really interesting. I thought I'd share it. It's that Peter is a symbol of the church. Now, some scholars argue, now we don't know this for sure because it's kind of inferring in the passage, but some scholars argue that Jesus, when he's saying uh, this statement, that uh, uh, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church, what he's actually doing is he's pointing at Peter and he's saying, you are Peter. And then he says, and on this rock I will plant my church. I will build my church. And essentially what he's doing is he's pointing to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Now, we don't know this with certainty, but basically this argument is that Jesus is insinuating the kind of church that Jesus would establish, one of every nation, one of every tribe, one of every tongue. And it would show that even in a place like this, my church will prevail. Now, it's clear that Peter had a, a great amount of authority and influence and impact in the life of the church. If you want to read uh, the first few chapters and beyond in the book of Acts, you kind of see all the things that he accomplished. And it's incredible. He had a, a lot of impact on the church. We know Peter's faith was truly an example, an example for us to model of sanctification. But we also know the kind of church that Jesus started was entirely different than was anticipated, isn't it? 
Because the church that Jesus established was not an authoritative, domineering, political kingdom. It was a family that crossed racial and ethnic and socioeconomic boundaries. It was not built out of wood or stone. It was a people group. His church was a new wave that was practiced with hospitality, generosity, rather than power and authority and exploitation of the weak. And we know that the church, as a result, exploded all throughout Asia Minor and the Mediterranean and beyond. And we know this is still happening today, don't we? Like right now, I could give you article after argue, or article of what's going on in the world. I could tell you that the church in China is exploding, which doesn't even make sense in our kind of Western context. We're like, how is this even happening? I could tell you there's an article I recently saw of the church exploding in nations uh, of predominantly Islam religion, right? Muslim nations, like Iran, if I could tell you, like right now, what we're doing in this place, in this building, in these chairs, worshiping together, reading from God's word together, hearing a message that this is not even allowed in places like that, and it's there, there, that the gospel is going forth in the way of Jesus being practiced. It's happening all around the world. But it's happening even here in Grand Haven, Michigan, isn't it? All right, we know this. How about those God at work videos that we've seen? amazing. Like, do we ever get sick of seeing lives changed like that? How about the hundreds of people who have been baptized as a result of this church being planted 11 years ago? How about the many marriages that have been restored through soul care? How about the many people who had zero background in the faith, atheists, out on the church, burnt by the church, come in bruised and damaged and hurt and they're pointed to the truths and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They give their life to him. And their entire identity is changed as a result. This is why Jesus says the gates of hell, or a better understanding is Hades, will not prevail. If your Bible is like mine in the ESV, it says hell. And that's fine, but don't think like Dante's infernal kind of hell. Like think like Hades, the Greek understanding of Hades, which really got at that this, this was a place of the power of death and evil itself. So when Jesus is communicating that not even the gates of Hades will prevail, he's communicating that not even the power or death itself will be able to stop the church of Jesus Christ. Not even in a place like Caesarea Philippi. So not only Peter is given a new identity, but the church. And this is really good news for us today, isn't it? Every single one of us. Because if believing in Jesus changes your identity, I want you to listen to me. You are no longer defined by your upbringing. For better or for worse. You are no longer defined by your past failures. The ways that you have fallen short. You are no longer defined by your personality, what you look like, your age, your gender. You are no longer defined by what you produce, your status, your income, your political affiliation. You are defined by God, and only God has the authority to tell you who you are. Amen? 
And I know Jesus has worked in my life countless times. And he's given me a new identity. One of the greatest compliments that I can ever have is I meet someone who knew me in high school or in elementary school, and they say, man, you've really changed. I say, yeah, that's Jesus Christ. So my question to you is, have you been changed? Have you been changed by Jesus? What are you known by? How would you identify yourself? If someone asked you, hey, who is that person? Who are you? Who's Alec? What would you answer? Has your faith impacted your character? Are you known by your preferences, your decision-making, your politics, your positions, your stances? Are you known by your love? Are you known by your peace? Are you known by joy? Because what you say about Jesus changes your identity. But not only that, it changes your calling. And this is our third and final point. My identity shapes my calling. My identity in Christ will shape my calling. Your identity today, who you say that you are, it shapes everything you do. Your identity determines your activity. In other words, who Jesus says that you are determines then what you live for. I want to finish our passage. Look at verse 19. Jesus tells Peter his calling. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Essentially what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to agree with your work because I am in you and I am working through you and I will equip you to do the things that I'm going to call you to do. And then he charges his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. He wasn't ready for his time. Now as we talked already Peter goes on to do incredible, amazing things. I mean, seriously, go home, read the book of Acts. It's unbelievable, specifically chapter 2. And I would just say that nobody in this room is Peter, okay? And that's a good thing, right? We already said, like, no one in this room has to be ever gone through where Jesus himself is saying, hey, get behind me, Satan. But Peter had a different calling. And you have a different calling in your life. You have a specific and unique calling on your life. Because when you know who your God is, you know who you are. And when you know who you are, you then in turn know how God is calling you to serve him in the church. Because God doesn't want to just change your character. He wants to change your calling, your desires, your motivations, your purpose for living itself. Because we know that Jesus, he defied all cultural understandings of who he would be and the kind of kingdom that he would establish. And as a result, for followers of Jesus today, namely the church, you and I, we should look a little different than the world around us, shouldn't we? Understanding your identity in Christ, listen, it changes how we demonstrate love to those who we think that we deserve and those who think we think that don't deserve it at all. Understanding our identity in Christ changes how we work. It changes our purpose for work. We work unto the Lord. 
Understanding our identity in Christ changes how we go through trials and tribulations and persecutions. It changes how we view those in authority over us. Understanding your identity changes how we view things like racial reconciliation and social justice and how we treat and respond to those in the LGBTQ community. It does. Your identity determines your activity. Understanding your identity changes your motivation not to be served, but to serve as Jesus did. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, is your identity changing the way that you live? Because if it's not, I would ask what your identity is if you are in Christ. And I would also ask, are you a part of this kingdom? Are you a part of the kingdom of God? Because if you are, you have a role to play. This is not just for pastors. This is the priesthood of all believers, as God's word would say. Jesus called broken people like Peter, like you, and like myself to be the church. Jesus qualifies the unqualified. And you, because of Jesus, his identity for you, you are now qualified. Do you believe that? So my question to you is, where are you called? Where is God calling you? Listen, if you are trying to figure that out, we are going to have pastors and elders and their wives up front who are passionate about hearing your passions and your giftings and how God has created you to be the body of Christ and plugging you in somewhere and discerning that with you. And finally, I want to close with just the question that Jesus posed to Peter 2,000 or so years ago. It's the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? And what is your answer today? And it's not my personality to kind of put you on the spot and saying you've got to answer this question right now. But I would also say that God's word says if you hear his voice today, Don't harden your heart to him. Turn to him. Repent of your sin. Believe what he did for you on the cross, that he took all of it onto himself, that he gave you grace in exchange for your sin, that he gave you a new identity in Christ. And I would also just add, wouldn't you want to have some security today and peace? Wouldn't you want to know what your identity is Listen, if you're wondering what your identity is, if you're wrestling with that, if you're wrestling with your calling today, this might be a great next step for you. Because when you believe in who Jesus is, that he is, in fact, the Christ, he is the Messiah, the Lord, the Savior, that he can be the Lord and Savior of your life. That if you trust him and if you believe in him, you can watch how God would change you. That is the gospel And the gospel alone has the ability to change you. Let's pray. God, I just want to thank you for this time together and for your word, God. God, in a moment, we're going to really return back the praise to you and say that you are worthy. God, we're going to just tell you who you are. And God, I just pray as we worship you and as we express our gratitude and thanks for who you are, God. I just pray that you would in turn speak 
your identity now over us. And God, that we would not be just a church, a people here that come here on a Sunday afternoon who feel good about themselves and leave here and do absolutely nothing about it. God, your gospel changes us. Your word changes us. Who you are gives us our identity if we would believe in you. And so God, I just pray for those who are wrestling with that in this moment. That God, maybe in this next song, that they would hear the words that are being sung and they would not just sing the words, but they would believe them and that they would be bold enough to have a conversation with someone to determine what is their next step. What are you calling them to? God, we trust you. We love you. We're so thankful for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.